Well, good evening. It's good to have you guys here. Um, I'm going to start by reading chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, which is the passage we'll be uh, covering tonight. If you don't happen to have a Bible, just know that we've got a stack of them on the Connect desk, and we'd be glad to give you one as a gift, uh, our gift to you, just so that you can have a Bible for yourself to be able to read through. And uh, we're casual enough that you're welcome to get up now and go get one if you'd like to have one to follow through during the service. But I'm going to go ahead and jump in and uh, read these verses to get us started. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest." in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, let me pray. Lord, I just pray that you would be gracious uh, to speak through me uh, this evening, that you would give me the words you would have me share, uh, that all of us might walk away with a better understanding of your word. I pray that as we look tonight and focus in on the humanity of Jesus and what he suffered and experienced in the midst of that, I pray it would give us a rich understanding for the love that you have for us. So I pray that you'd be gracious to have your hand upon us in this time as we open your word and study your word together. Amen. Um, as we look through scripture, we see a number of different phrases that are used to describe the people of God. Uh, one of the th phrases that'll be used is it'll talk about the kingdom of God. And, and that phrase makes sense to me. We think of God as a king and all of his people and his kingdom coming together and uh, establishing a kingdom. That, that makes sense to me. That seems like a good analogy. Uh, it also talks about a body. This one makes sense to me. If we think about Jesus as the head of his body and all of the different members having different gifts and abilities and they all have to function in the right way for the body to be healthy, that, that kind of makes sense to me. That seems like a good analogy for all the inner workings of how we come together. Um, another one that he uses is a family. And on the one hand, this makes a lot of sense. The family of God were his adopted sons and daughters. On the other hand, this one's always a little bit intriguing to me though because Every family I know is a mess. Like, not the whole family. Like, there's some good families, but every family has a little bit of messiness to it, right? Like, most every family has that crazy aunt or uncle. Uh, and if you're thinking your family doesn't, that's probably because you're the crazy aunt or uncle everyone talks about. Um, everyone's got that crazy cousin that's always getting into trouble. Uh, I don't know, they're just, or even in the healthiest of families. I mean, I had a great family, but there were still times of hurt or, or just dysfunction in areas that just, that, you know, weren't the healthiest. Uh, and so every family, no matter how great, has a little bit of mess to it. And it, it surprises me. I'm like, so, so God, in talking about us as his people, would use an analogy that has this kind of tainted uh, stigma to it. Like family, as good as it can be, tends to have a mess. And so tonight, we're going to actually look um, in these verses 
And we see a little bit of shift in focus. Up to this point, the author of Hebrews has talked about the divinity of Jesus. Uh, in Hebrews 1.3, for example, it said, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So those are words that really talk about his divinity and his glory and his power. Whereas tonight, these verse, the verses take a shift and they really focus in on his humanity and it's a very different perspective. Now my hope is as we look at his humanity, we can get some insight into his love for us and what he suffered and endured for us as he walked into humanity and why he would call us in all of our mess his family. So hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a better understanding of why he would use that, that phrase and all that it entails. So let's start by looking at verse 10. And I just want to forewarn any of y'all that um, really like to go just verse by verse, we will cover all the verses, uh, but they're different thought clusters. And so I'm actually going to kind of, uh, we're not going to work straight from 10 through 18. I'm going to kind of tackle a few, jump around and then come back. And so if you follow with me, uh, I think you'll, you'll see how it makes sense. But I just want to forewarn any of you that are OCD and expecting to just work your way straight down the list. So in verse 10, it says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, there are a handful of little phrases I want to pull out of this and unpack with you guys. First of all, we see for whom and by whom all things exist. Uh, this is a really strong statement about uh, God's glorious reign and, and the, the glory of God. If we think about it. All of creation is purposed for God's glory. At least that's what this verse is saying, for whom and by whom all things exist. Uh, Isaiah, now in Isaiah 43, there's an interesting phrase that um, stands out to me. It says, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. And, and I don't know about you, but I'll admit most of my days I get very um, self-absorbed. I'm thinking about my responsibilities, the things I need to care for, the life God's given me. I, I tend to think of the universe and all of its grandeur really, <laughs> I, I miss most of it. And I just think about the universe as it relates to me um, and can be very self-absorbed in that. But the truth is uh, the universe is much bigger than my experience. Really, myself and all that was created was created for God's glory and to bring him praise. So we see this great statement of God's glory. Uh, and then we see that, that God's plan was to bring many sons to glory. Um, if you think about this, this really has been the purpose from the beginning of time. And let me trace this uh, through some of the overarching storylines in scripture, so hopefully you can understand what I mean. Uh, but if you look back in the garden, God created Adam and Eve, and he put them there in the garden uh, so that they could dwell in his presence. God was walking in the garden with them. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the midst of the garden, they chose to eat of the fruit, and there was sin, and that sin broke the relationship with God. But, but God knew that was going to happen. It wasn't a surprise, and we see that he had a plan. Uh, and, and when that sin entered in, it actually allowed God the chance to show just how great his love was by pursuing a sinful people to restore them back to himself. And we see throughout the Old Testament, God making um, indications that he was working to restore them and showing his glorious grace to them. We see with Abraham, God promised he would make Abraham a great nation. And really, that was a foreshadowing of, of the, God's family, God's people, the people he was restoring back to himself. We see uh, with Moses uh, that God wanted to help free the Israelites out of slavery and take them to the promised land. 
But more importantly than the promised land, God wanted to restore his presence with them. And so God was there dwelling in their midst. Uh, He was there with them, leading them and and guiding them. Now, unfortunately, the Israelites missed a lot of that. They were grumbling and complaining, and they kept talking about how they just wanted to get to the promised land. Uh, Moses, in contrast to that, he understood it. There was one point where God got really mad at the Israelites, and he had basically said, man, forget it. I'm sending you guys, but I'm not going with you, because if I go, I might kill them all. Like, I'm really angry. And Moses said, Lord, if you're not going with us, then, then don't send us. Like Moses understood, the important thing was not the promised land, it was God's presence. So we see God working to restore his people. Uh, we see that with David, King David uh, in the Old Testament, God promised him that there would be a king that would come from his lineage that would rule and reign forever. God foreshadowing that he had a plan to establish his kingdom and restore people back to himself as his people. All of these things pointed to God's ultimate plan to redeem and restore us back into his presence, back into his glorious presence. It's this idea of of bringing many sons to glory. Uh, The experience of glory is being in God's presence. That's where glory is. So hopefully you can see that, that this isn't just some new phrase the author in Hebrews is bringing out, but he's really saying, hey, this has been the purpose from the very beginning and God is bringing it about and he's now explaining what this looks like, how God purposed to bring us back into his glory. He then says he does this, looking at the next phrase in that verse, he does this in a very fitting way by allowing the founder of their salvation to suffer as they do. Now, this word fitting is interesting. Um, it means that this wasn't an accident. Like when Adam and Eve sinned, or for any of us when they were sinned, it wasn't like God said, oh man, gosh, they, man, I wasn't expecting that. What do I do now? Like that wasn't in the plan. What it actually means is, no, God knew that was gonna happen, and he had a fitting plan, and this plan that he put to work was, was the exact plan, the perfect plan, the right plan, the best way, the fitting way for him to accomplish what he was out to do. And in this particular instance, the fitting way was making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this word founder, um, you could translate it pioneer or, or a pathfinder, a trailblazer. The idea is that, that Jesus went ahead of us to establish the way of restoration. He went first. Um, this particular word, uh, just as a side note, it's only used four times in the New Testament, twice or in Hebrews. Uh, and we see from that, like, this is a very educated and fancy speaker. Like, he's using very specific, fancy, formal words that were not necessarily common language. Um, I, I use a lot of words people don't understand, but it's because I have a lot of redneck in me, uh, not because they're fancy and formal words. Um, but this guy had very fancy, formal words, uh, but was using those to communicate a very clear point. Now, the next word that we run into, this kind of brings up a sticky point, so we're gonna camp out here for a minute. But it said that he made the founder um, perfect through suffering. Now, this kind of raises the question, well, what does that mean that Jesus was made perfect? Uh, So I've got two commentaries I wanna read. The first, a commentary uh, titled The Letter to the Hebrews by Peter O'Brien. He says, in order to achieve this glorious goal, God fittingly, makes Christ the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This unusual expression has been the subject of significant exegetical and theological debate since the earliest of times. The idea of perfection or completion, which appears frequently in Hebrews, turns up here for the first time and refers to the perfecting of Christ. So that sets the stage for the tension. Uh, In another commentary, John Owen, he says, perfect here 
signifies to consecrate or dedicate and sanctify for an office, for some special part of an office. The word is used by Christ himself when he says, for them I sanctify myself, uh, John 17, 19. That is, dedicate or consecrate or separate myself to be a sacrifice. So it was appropriate that God should dedicate and consecrate the Lord Christ for this part of his work through his own suffering. So kind of unpacking a few ideas from those commentaries, we see number one, uh, in Jewish culture, you knew something not just when you had a, a head knowledge of it, but when you had actually experienced it. And so part of this idea of perfection and, and um, um, completion was was. Jesus experienced the full human experience. He understood it. Uh, he was complete. There was fulfillment, accomplishment. Like his human experience wasn't lacking anything. He experienced it in full. The second idea uh, was this idea that the priests were consecrated. They were made ready for their role. Well, in that sense, Jesus was made ready for his role to intercede on our behalf. Um, and he showed himself to be ready through his faithfulness and obedience when he was tempted and when he suffered. So in that regard, Jesus was made perfect, uh, meaning he showed himself faithful and ready for the service that God intended him for. Next, we dive into verse 10, and I'm actually gonna bring in verse 18 to start to take a look at this idea of suffering and how Jesus suffered. So we see again, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, this idea of suffering, we're going to spend a bit of time here, um, but this idea would have been a total affront to the Jewish way of thinking at the time. Uh, when they thought of um, and, and their understanding of these covenants and promises that God had made to their forefathers, they were expecting an earthly king, somebody that was going to come in and establish an earthly kingdom and set them free and conquer their enemies and establish this glorious uh, earthly kingdom. And so the thought to them that Jesus uh, was going to come down from heaven and, and actually suffer immensely uh, would have been a hard one for them to wrap their brains around. That's not what they were expecting. Um, we see that um, even in the Gospels, uh, Jesus, as he explained to his followers he was going to die, like they couldn't wrap their brains around it. In Matthew 16, he said he would be delivered up to be crucified just shortly before it happened, and his disciples didn't get it. When, when everything stirred up the commotion, I mean, they were totally confused. They didn't understand it. But again, it was because they had a totally different expectation for what they thought their Messiah was going to be. And I have to be honest, I fully appreciate why it was hard for them to wrap their brains around because even now, looking at the New Testament and how it explains what all of that was pointing to, um, it's a completely backwards way of thinking from what I would have expected. So I can appreciate why they didn't get this. Um, there's a phrase that, that we use back home that I thought, I thought was a very common phrase until uh, I shared it today and, and all the morning services, like four people had a clue what I was talking about, but I think you'll understand when I explain it. The phrase goes, it is way easier to go from the outhouse to the penthouse than from the penthouse to the outhouse. Does that make sense? Um, if you don't have anything and all of a sudden, you know, luxury gets rolled out in front of you, that's an easy thing to adjust to. Uh, when you've got everything in the world and all of a sudden it's taken away, uh, that's a really hard thing to adjust to. And, and you see somebody's character and how they respond in those moments. Um, as one example, there was a family that, that uh, grew up in our neighborhood, uh, or I grew up in the neighborhood they were in, depending on how you look at it. Um, I went to school with their kids, uh, neat family, uh, neat Christian family, the husband and wife are just awesome folks. 
And he basically, like when I was in high school and his kids were in junior high, high school, he was basically retired. I mean, this guy had had tremendous success in a number of different endeavors, uh, one of which he had been an architect and actually designed the home they lived in. And it was like a country castle. This thing was beautiful, one of the prettiest homes I've ever seen. Uh, They lived on several acres and had horses and little like cobblestone bridges that they had built like over the creeks in their yard. I mean, amazing place. And so this very accomplished, successful family, um, he traveled the world playing golf with famous people and just was a networker and having fun. And um, he did, as a hobby, he did comedy. He would go into comedy clubs and do a lot of comedy and he did clean comedy and he realized that was in short order. Most of the comedy world was pretty crass. And so he decided he would take all of his fortunes and invest them in developing a comedy like um, theater in a comedy college in Tennessee. So he moves his family up there. They launch a beautiful, like a huge uh, theater where he could do his comedy, uh, built this entire business. And uh, it was rated one of the top shows to go to, one of the most likely shows for people to return to. Um, I mean, it was, it was something else, a pretty spectacular deal he created. But he was not, uh, the, the, the attendance wasn't going fast enough and the income wasn't going fast enough to catch up with the debts as they had incurred. And he lost everything. And so here's this family that had been living, you know, in, in, from the world standards, like, it, you know, the best you could imagine. Talk about a penthouse. I mean, they had everything. And all of a sudden, they had nothing. He had to be probably in his 50s or 60s at the time and literally starting from scratch again. And what was amazing is they, they had a pretty wide network of people. And I think people all knew that there's a Christian family and everyone was watching. How are they going to respond? It's been easy for you to praise God your whole life. Like, you've had everything the world could offer. How are you going to act now that all of that's been taken away? And to their credit, they had tremendous humility and grace. Um, they walked through it with the utmost of character. And people realized, wow, y'all really do love the Lord. You really do trust the Lord. You have suffered really well. That's a hard transition. They went from the penthouse to the outhouse, and they suffered well in the midst of that. So it showed them to have a really strong character. Um, another example that, that comes to mind in terms of the challenge uh, that can be and how you see people's character in the midst of suffering, um, there's a pastor in uh, the Dallas area named Matt Chandler that many of y'all I'm sure have heard of. Uh, Matt uh, had jumped into this church. They had tremendous growth, a lot of fruit, a lot of people watching what they were doing, and God was transforming lots of lives. And um, I'm sure there were a lot of people that were like, well, sure, easy for you to talk about what a great God, Matt, like everything in your life seems to turn to gold. Uh, and then Matt came down with some pretty severe cancer and brain cancer and had a number of surgeries and uh, suffered immensely uh, through treatments and things like that. And as he shared the experience, people saw that uh, he wasn't just praising God because life had been easy because all of a sudden when life was very hard and there was the risk of losing life, he still honored and worshiped God with tremendous consistency and character, and that created a huge foundation for people to trust him because they realized this man suffers well. And so we see a lot about people's character and how they suffer. Um, in, in, in those people, uh, you know, you see people that, from the world's perspective, had a lot going on, but then kind of got moved down to the outhouse. They experienced harsh circumstances, and their character was shown through that. Um, exponentially more so, Jesus Christ went from the penthouse to the outhouse. Um, I think often we have this perspective that Jesus didn't suffer really uh, up until the cross. Like, yeah, that was suffering, but you know, 24 hours, a short time, and it was over. And the truth is his whole life was suffering. Um, He went from an eternity unified in heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit 
and entered into humanity and suffered tremendously uh, in his human experience. Um, this is so backwards to what the Jewish people were thinking. And again, so backwards to the way I would think of it. Why in the world would the God of the universe come down and suffer? That just doesn't ring true of what you would expect for a, a, a rescuing savior, a rescuing Messiah to do. I wanna look at some of the ways that Jesus suffered and I want us to think about this. Um, I actually had had lunch with someone the other day and they said, you know, it's hard to, like, how can Jesus relate? I know he suffered on the cross, but the rest of his life, he didn't really suffer. And I was like, well, hold on, let's think about what, what does suffering look like? And let's think about what Jesus endured. And you tell me if you think he suffered or not. Uh, number one, we know that Jesus was misunderstood. Imagine that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and you come and you are telling everybody, hey, here's, here's what God has purposed from the beginning of time. I'm here to rescue you. And yet people are misunderstanding him. They don't, they don't get what he's saying. They're confused. They expected something different. They're, they're rejecting what he's telling them. How hurtful would that be? I mean, you are giving the full truth to people, and yet they're misunderstanding you, and they don't get it. That had to be incredibly hard. He was rejected. Um, I, I think about this one. Um, you maybe have experienced this. You have somebody in your life that you really love and you see something that you're concerned about and you speak into their life. You're, you're speaking with love and truth, but it's a word they don't wanna hear. And, and man, they reject that. They say, you know what, to heck with you, I'm out of here. And, and all of a sudden that relationship bridge is burned. And man, you've probably, if you've ever experienced that, felt the suffering, like the heavy heart as you see your friend who you love reject your words of love towards them just because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. And I think, man, that was Jesus's whole life when he was communicating truth to people often, they didn't like what they heard. He was confronting their idolatries and identity distortions and, and they didn't want to submit to him as Lord and so they would reject his word and walk away and that had to hurt when thinking, man, I've left all of heaven to come down and suffer with you to try and help draw you out of the mire and you're going to reject me? That would have to be incredibly hurtful. I imagine that when Jesus was rejected time and time again that he suffered tremendously. He was betrayed um, by his close, one of his closest disciples. He was abandoned uh, in his final hours. All of the disciples fled, and one of them even denied him three times. Um, as you all know, he was beaten and crucified on the cross. Tremendous physical suffering. Now, you may have experienced misunderstanding, rejection, betrayal, abandonment, um, and so you can maybe relate to some of these areas in the way that Christ has suffered because you've suffered in similar ways. Uh, there's another area where Christ suffered, and, and it, was, it was unique. I think... Um, when we think about the fact that God was, uh, Jesus was forsaken by his father, that was a really unique suffering. Now, you might have a broken relationship with your dad and have experienced suffering in that, uh, but Jesus even more so because he had known unity for all of eternity with God the Father, and then that was severed. Like, we, we haven't experienced the fullness of what it would be to be in God's presence and dwelling in unity with him, but Jesus knew what that was like, and he'd experienced that for all of eternity. And all of a sudden, he enters into the human experience, and on the cross, he takes on the full uh, breadth of our sin, and because of that, he incurs the full wrath of God's, uh, the fullness of God's wrath against that sin and felt the brokenness of having his relationship with God severed. That had to be devastating. We also see that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. We see that um, there's a, a point in the New Testament where uh, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and he comes out of uh, that time of fasting and Satan shows up to tempt him. Satan tempts him with the desire of the flesh. Um, Satan knows he had not eaten for 40 days and he says, hey, 
If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Jesus resisted, but we see there's that temptation of the flesh. We see that he uh, tempted him with identity distortion. Um, He took him up to a high place and he said, hey, throw yourself down from here. Uh, It's written that he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And in essence, Satan was saying, man, you're suffering. This is a really rough deal. Are you sure God really loves you and cares for you? Like, are you sure you're really his, his son and that he cherishes you? Like, maybe you should figure that out. And, and here's a good way. Throw yourself off. If he really loves you, the angels will come and get you. And maybe you can put that to rest. Like, like Satan was causing identity distortion. He was raising concern and question. But Jesus resisted that. Um, we also see Satan tempted him with idolatry, uh, uh, tempting him with power. Satan took him up and showed him all of these kingdoms, and he said, hey, all of these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. It was kind of like, man, I, I've kind of got a sense for what God's plan is. It looks pretty painful. Like, forget that. If you'll just worship me, I'll go ahead and give you all of this. He was stirring up idolatry. Again, Jesus resisted, but, but in the midst of these, we see that Jesus suffered in temptation, as the, the writers in Hebrews tells us. Now, did, did Jesus ever give in to these temptations? No. Did he and his divine nature actually want to sin? No. Uh, but he did suffer when he was tempted. Now, he chose obedience and he chose faithfulness to God in the midst of this, uh, but we have to appreciate that Jesus did suffer when tempted. Uh, I want to highlight real quick, because this is pretty fascinating to me, that there's a real pattern here. Um, Satan uh, has been using these same old tricks over and over over the years. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, we see when he came to Adam and Eve, uh, he tempted her with the desire of the flesh. The woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. He was tempting her flesh. He saw, we see that he tempted her with identity distortion. Uh, He said, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, the truth was Adam and Eve were already made in the image of God. They were like God, but but Satan was causing doubt and making them think, well, wait a minute. Uh, When you eat, then you'll be made like God. And so he was raising the question in their mind and creating an identity distortion. And then he tempted her with idolatry. It said, uh, she said that the tree was desired to make one wise. The thought being, well, man, if I understood all of that, I wouldn't have to trust on God. I could discern things for myself. And so it was this idolatry. I don't want to trust God. I'd rather be on my own and be independent of God. John, uh, 1 John 2.16 says, for all that's in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Do you see that pattern? We see it in how Jesus was tempted. We see it in how Adam and Eve were tempted. First John shows us that it's a common way that we're all tempted. This lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We see from this that the enemy tempts us and attacks us with identity distortions, gospel distortions, and idolatry. This isn't new. These are things we need to be on the lookout for. He tempted Jesus with these things as well, but it is important to note Jesus was faithful and obedient. Jesus resisted these temptations. Uh, He endured his suffering with obedience and worship to God. The point of this is that when we see that Jesus was tempted, and and as I said earlier, the the author of Hebrews makes it clear that uh, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. So Jesus has been tempted and Jesus has suffered immensely. Uh, And even when we think about our suffering and the suffering of Jesus, I would challenge you that um, Jesus has suffered immensely more than we ever have. But in the midst of his suffering, he was faithful and obedient, and he chose to honor God. So he can relate to us, and he has experienced the hurt we've experienced, so he can relate 
Uh, but he has shown a different way, a better way, by being obedient in the midst of his suffering. Um, someone shared a quote, and I'm sorry I don't have it on a slide, but it kind of came in at the last minute. Somebody shared this with me. Rosaria Butterfield said, Jesus sweated blood. He withstood the test. He ran the whole race. We can't make such claims. We haven't been tested that hard or humiliated that comprehensively. We're in the ABCs of the kindergarten of the school of temptation. By not falling into temptation, Jesus ran the whole race while I collapsed in the first mile. Hopefully you're getting an understanding of Jesus' deep love for us by the suffering he endured on our behalf. As we look in verse 14, pressing a little further into the text, we see that Jesus, in what he endured, he defeats death. Said, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So looking at these verses, it raises the question, what does it mean that the devil has the power of death? In essence, when Satan enters in with temptation, when we um, give in to that temptation and choose sin, that sin then puts us in a place where our sin deserves death. Um, it says, for the wages of sin is death. And it's that fear of eternal separation from God and, and death, that fear enslaves us. And, and because of the enslaving fear of that, Satan now has power and authority over us. But in an interesting reversal, we see that Jesus turns the tables. Um, Jesus conquers death. Now, I'm not a martial arts guy, uh, martial arts guy but um, somebody told me that Aikido is the form of martial arts where instead of learning how to throw punches at your opponent, what you actually learn how to do is when they throw the punches at you, you kind of take that and you use their, their attack against them. Um, and so it's more of a using their power to reverse against them and to get the upper hand. Well, if that's how Aikido works, um, I would say Jesus just unleashed a major turn of spiritual Aikido. Um, think about this. Uh, Jesus is, is walking through this human experience, and Satan thinks, man, I know what I can do. I will take him out, I'll kill him, and then I'll have victory. God's, God's redemptive plan will be put, put to rest literally in the grave. I'll have victory. Jesus willingly walks into death, but in suffering through death, and then conquering death and raising again, all of a sudden he reversed things on Satan. And what Satan meant to destroy Jesus actually became the very means by which Satan conquered death and freed people from the slavery of death and the fear of death that we were previously enslaved to. So by Jesus' grace and going through the cross and dying and raising again, he defeats death, giving us a way out. We also see in the midst of that that Jesus deals with sin in verse 16 and 17. It says, Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, as we look at the Old Testament, we see that God had mediated our relationship um, um, with him through priests. Uh, in the Old Testament, the priests... Uh, would come in and first of all, they would make sacrifices for themselves. Uh, again, the wages of sin was death, so, so something had to die. And they would sacrifice an animal and that blood would take the place of the people's blood, uh, uh, appeasing God and, and covering uh, the sins, uh, absolving the, the wrath that, that would be poured out against uh, the, the blood of that animal. So the priest would 
make a sacrifice for themselves. The priest would then make a sacrifice uh, for the people of Israel and, and by so doing would provide a, a means that they could be restored into right relationship with God. Uh, the problem was, number one, as I said, the priests were sinful, so they had to make sacrifices for themselves. Uh, and number two, these were temporary. They weren't perfect sacrifices, so they had to be repeated year after year. Well, God mediates our relationship with him through Jesus now and his perfect sacrifice. Um, Unlike the priests who had to make their sacrifices for themselves, uh, Jesus was a perfect sacrifice because he lived a sinless life and he was continually obedient and faithful. He showed himself to be a perfect sacrifice. Consequently, when he uh, went to the cross, um, he took upon himself the full wrath of God on our behalf. It was a perfect sacrifice, and once it was done, it was done forever. Jesus didn't have to die again and again. It was done once and for all. And so the idea of propitiation is God, in his just uh, nature, had to pour out wrath against sin. It, it had to be punished, but, but Jesus stepped in on our place and diverted God's wrath away from us onto himself and endured that suffering on our behalf. Then dying and rising again, conquering death, made a means by which we could be reconciled to God. Now, skipping back up to verses 11 through 13, there's another aspect that we need to take a look at from these verses. We see that Jesus isn't ashamed of us. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. As we look at this, we see... uh, it talks about Jesus as our big brother. And when we look at this verse, Psalms 18.4, it says, I will put my trust in him. That's Psalms 18.4 is where that, uh, that verse comes from, the, the quote that's referenced there, I will put my trust in him. And it shows that when Jesus took on humanity, part of his human experience was that he had to trust in God just like we need to trust in God. And that gave him a common ground with us. Um, N.T. Wright has a great quote that unpacks this a little bit, and he said, it encourages us to see Jesus not as the kind of older brother whom we resent because he's always getting things right and being successful while we're always getting things wrong and failing, but as the kind of older brother who without a trace of patronizing or looking down his nose at us comes to find us where we are out of sheer love and goodness of heart and helps us out of the mess part of the mess that Jesus helps us out of is he helps us out of the shame that enslaves us. If we think about um, our life cycle apart from Jesus, what we have is a a shame cycle. Uh, Let me explain. Um, We suffer, uh, whether it's because of uh, sins committed against us, our own sin, um, or because of just the brokenness of the human experience, we suffer. And in the midst of our suffering, we have a tendency to doubt God's purposes and God's goodness. And consequently, when we doubt God, we tend to seek escape. We don't want to suffer. We want, we want to be done with the suffering, so we seek escape. Then we're tempted, and we choose to sin. We choose to seek out things that we think will satisfy, although they never do. And we seek to, to do things that truly are a worship of ourselves instead of a uh, submission to God in his glory. And then, because of all of that, we're enslaved by fear of death apart from Christ. So this cycle, you think about that as that cycle repeats, it just builds increased amounts of shame. And there's nothing we can do to free ourselves out of that shame cycle. 
Now, we see when we look at the life of Christ a completely opposite cycle, um, the, for lack of a better phrase, unashamed cycle. Um, I've been apologizing all day. I haven't been to seminary, so I don't have fancy like skills in alliteration or fancy titles, but, but this makes sense. His unashamed cycle. It's a nice contrast to our shame cycle. Um, but we see that Jesus' story is totally different. Jesus suffered, but when he suffered, he chose to submit to God's purposes, and he trusted God perfectly. When he was tempted and suffered, he chose obedience and worshiped God instead of choosing to go his own way. And Jesus was obedient while, while we were uh, afraid of death and enslaved by the fear of death. Jesus willingly walked into death. Then he was raised up from the dead, conquering death. And so his cycle absolutely does away with and conquers shame, whereas ours creates shame. Um, as you think about this, guys, our story is so contrary to the story of Jesus. At every turn, Jesus chose the better way. Um, first of all, he showed his immense love for us by entering into the human experience and suffering tremendously on our behalf. He chose to worship God in the midst of his suffering. He chose to be obedient in the midst of his suffering. He chose to submit to God in the midst of his suffering. Jesus trusted God through all his suffering, even to the point of death. And Jesus conquered death and now reigns. So we see that through Jesus, God had a plan to redeem and to restore us back into relationship with himself. Jesus alone can free us from our shame cycle and from the fear of death. Guys, this is amazing news. Uh, mind-blowing news. It, it was a total paradigm shift that, again, the, the Jewish uh, thinking of the time had, had such a difficulty wrapping their brain around. Um, and, and I think for most of us, it's a difficult thing for us to truly wrap our brain around and appreciate to its full. I was trying to think of a good way to express um, the impact it has when we realize someone can relate because I think so much of the crux of this is the fact that Jesus entered into the human experience so he could relate with us. And that's an incredibly endearing thing. Um, it, it breaks down bridges when you realize someone can relate. I was thinking about an illustration to, to kind of uh, tie this to, and I was thinking about our community group leader training that we had been doing for the last six weeks uh, during the week here in the Commons. Um, one of the things we started with was sharing our life stories, our testimonies, and we talked about how to do those because uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up where a lot of times when they talk about how to share your testimony, it was, you know, here's your life before Christ. It was a mess. Here's how you came to know Jesus, and here is how much better life is. Uh, and, and the risk that you can fall into is you can share a gospel distortion that basically suggests, well, hey, if you've met Jesus, then your whole life should be perfect now, and you shouldn't have any more problems. And I think a lot of people walk into the church, and they know they've still got problems, and they're thinking, I'll never be accepted here because I'm not all tidied up like you guys are. Uh, but the truth is, even after we've met Jesus, there's still broken places in our life and areas that we struggle. And so when we talked about sharing the testimonies, we said, hey, you know, it's life before Christ. Here's how God's been at work in my life. And at my worst, I still struggle in this way. At my worst, I still suffer in these ways and, and wrestle with these things. And, and that allows us to kind of be honest about the fact that we're not perfected yet. Uh, God is perfecting and growing us, but we're still broken. Uh, and so anyways, in, in setting up this format and talking to people about how to share their testimonies and build relationship, I let out with mine and I was sharing my testimony. And it was interesting. The next week, a couple of different people grabbed me and they said, you know, I've I haven't really trusted you. I haven't felt safe with you. Um, I've got some real broken places in my life and I never felt like I could be honest with you because you seem buttoned up. You seem like you kind of had your act together, 
But in hearing your testimony, I realize you've suffered in a lot of the ways that I have, and you've also experienced brokenness like I have. And I realize now that, that I actually can relate with you, and I feel much safer to, to connect with you and to be honest about where I'm at in things. And I say that for the sake of when we think about Jesus, all the more so, right? Like he left heaven, he was enjoying life in the penthouse, and he came down to the outhouse to dwell with us, to walk with us, and to experience life in the way that we had. And I would argue, again, that he suffered more than we ever will. And he did that to relate with us and to, to show himself a merciful high priest that would intercede on our behalf out of care and compassion for us, not out of frustration like the older brother who's just frustrated you can't get your act together, but as the, the quote said, the, the older brother who loves and cares and just wants to help get you out of the mess Guys, this is amazing, mind-blowing news. Think about all that Jesus willingly took on. Um, as I've talked about, he took on human form, immense suffering so that he could relate. He understands what you're going through. Um, it's important to know that um, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. The enemy would love for you to think that Jesus is ashamed and you can never be honest about who you really are in front of these other people here because they would be ashamed of you. But the truth is Jesus isn't ashamed of you. His attitude towards you is love and mercy and faithfulness. Uh, he loves you and he's here for you. And he is begging you to receive his love and his grace so that you can be restored back in relationship with him and with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And guys, that is something to celebrate. Um, we're actually going to switch gears now so that we can do just that. We're gonna open up a time of, of worship and celebration where you can respond in an act of worship. Um, we're gonna do this in several ways. Uh, through offering, if the financial stewards would come forward. Uh, we're gonna do this through communion as well as through worship and song and prayer. Um, as they come forward for the offering, uh, offering is really uh, a chance for us to respond with worship, acknowledging God is Lord over everything that we have, and, and what we've been given is really a tool that we can use to worship him. And so if you're a guest, know that you are under no obligation to give. If you would like to, you're welcome to, but this is really a time of worship for those people that call this church home. As they're passing the buckets, I'll share a couple of questions that are questions you can take home to wrestle with uh, either on your own or especially with a community group. Question number one, why did Jesus have to be made like us in every respect? Question number two, why was it fitting for Jesus to be made perfect, uh, to be consecrated for his role as high priest through suffering? Number three, how does Jesus save us from slavery and fear of death? Number four, how does knowing that Jesus isn't ashamed to call you his brother, how does that confront any shame that you feel in your life? Lastly, in your suffering, how are you trusting God and being obedient like Jesus, and how are you being disobedient? It'd be a great one to talk through with your community group to really look into areas that um, Jesus might be calling you to confess and to, to um, walk out with others that can challenge and encourage you so that you can walk in obedience instead of disobedience. A couple of prayer points. Number one, pray that God would expose and eliminate any shame that you're holding on to. Number two, pray that God would empower you to trust him and to be obedient to him in the midst of your suffering. Um, I think that's a great prayer to have down. It is so easy in the midst of our suffering to want to escape and to trust, uh, to struggle with trusting God, uh, but to pray that he would help you to trust him and be obedient. 
Um, the next thing we're going to do is actually experience a time of communion. And, and uh, we experience an open table here, meaning uh, whether you normally attend this church or somewhere else, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come up and enjoy communion. Communion is a time for Christians to remember uh, what Jesus has done. When we take the bread, we remember his body that was broken for us on the cross. When, when we dip it in the wine or the juice, we remember that that represents his blood that was shed for us all in his act to endure the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be restored back into right relationship with God. So communion is a wonderful time of celebrating the work that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Now, this is a, a practice for Christians to acknowledge the work God has done. If you're not a Christian, then we would invite you today to put your trust in Jesus. Don't let shame send you hiding from Jesus. Instead, be encouraged because Jesus can relate. Jesus loves you and has compassion for you, and he understands your suffering. And so you can be honest with Jesus. You can turn to him in your suffering and sin so that he can free you from your shame. And so if you've never embraced this truth, we would invite you to cast aside all that shame and to put your trust in Jesus today. And then as a new believer, let your first act of worship be coming forward to take communion. And so we invite you to do that today. Uh, at this point, I'm gonna invite y'all to stand. I'll pray. And then after prayer, you can come forward and have communion as you're ready. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the amazing way that you have displayed your glory and shown us that you had a purpose from the beginning of time to restore us as your sons into glory and that you did that through your redeeming work of your son as Jesus came to earth, endured great suffering even to the point of death so that he could die on our behalf, providing a means by which we can be restored into right relationship with you. And Lord, we praise you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would just stir our hearts with a deep affection and a deep sense of worship. And that as we enter into this time of taking communion and singing praises, that our hearts would be stirred with the depth of gratitude that we should have for you and all of your grace towards us. We worship and praise your name. Amen.